Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Sarah and the Red Scarf, a Christmas story by Albert Rapisi, who joins me from Connecticut. Thank you, Albert, for joining me today. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. This book, obviously, is seasonal in its style and in its content. What was the inspiration behind Sarah and the Red Scarf? Well, interestingly, it was a real-life situation that had preceded my writing the story. Um, Christmas Eve, we had invited friends to come to the house, and uh, a single mom came with her daughter, who was supposed to have been in a Christmas pageant that evening, and the mother had missed the message from the church that said they were to have been there at 4 o'clock for rehearsal, or they would not have been allowed to participate in the Christmas pageant. They got there at 5 o'clock, and the little girl was denied access to the pageant. Mm. I heard that story at our house later that evening, and the little girl was devastated when she came in, so I brought her upstairs, and I made a little angel outfit for her. I put a pillowcase over her and tied a belt around it, and then quickly put together some wings and uh, brought her downstairs and gave her a candle and had her stand in the hallway, and all of us, our other guests were in the living room with the door closed, and I told the story about a little girl who was supposed to have been in a Christmas pageant, and she was denied entry because of a, of a woman who was uncompromising. Uh, however, if we were to sing Silent Night, perhaps that same little angel would appear to brighten our evening tonight. So we all sang Silent Night, and we opened the doors, and a little girl came into our living room holding the candle, and she was, you know, flush with a smile on her face, and uh, our, uh, our our goal of cheering her up was fulfilled. So about a year later, I was reviewing that story in my mind, and I said, you know, if, if I build around this basic incident, I think there's a delightful little story here. And so Sarah and the Red Scarf is basically uh, that story. You have not only been an author, because there are other works that you have uh, participated in, but you have a background as a, a dentist in, in the orthodontic field. Uh, that is true. I've uh, practiced uh, orthodontics for over 40 years here in Greenwich. Um, before that, I uh, had been in the military and uh, served in, in Germany for three years, and then I uh, went back to Penn where I'd gone to dental school, and I taught pediatric dentistry for there for a year before to uh, Columbia, and uh, ended up here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Even a, a baseball memoir. Yes. Uh, well, baseball was a great avocation of mine, I, uh, and I played uh, in college very briefly. Probably my most uh, remarkable uh, memory of baseball, however, was in 1983 or 84 when they were holding the first baseball Olympics. I was uh, 44 at the time, and uh, I saw the article in the paper, and I drove up to Yale that morning, and I had taken out all my baseball stuff. And so I tried out for the first U.S. Olympics, and um, during the tryouts, one of the scouts collapsed in the stands. It was extremely hot that day, so I left the field, 
and I went and took care of him and uh, called an ambulance, and that was basically the end of my tryout. But mm. there was no way I was going to make the team anyway. But uh, it was a great, you know, it was a great memory to have had. Add some great texture to your life, though, and a, a great memory to pass along. Yeah, it's it, you know the uh, you got some little mementos. I, I got an Olympic participation shirt, and I I ran in that Olympic uh, torch run through town that day. You know, it's it, it was it was just a great a great fun experience. Your story involves a main character, Sarah. And also another character, Hezekiah. How did those two fit into your story, and what made the change in Ezekiel's heart? Well, it, the story is basically a, um, a story of virtues and vice. Virtues of humility, charity, and kindness. Uh, vices of pride, impatience, and intolerance. And certainly uh, Sarah uh, possesses the virtues, and Hezekiah, because of personal circumstances has kind of lost her own way and uh, presents a very prideful disposition. She's impatient and intolerant with Sarah. Uh, But along the way, certain acts of kindness of Sarah um, enlighten Ezekiah, who in turn makes uh, a redemptive move of being not only forgiving, but um, very helpful to Sarah by the time the story ends. As you begin to write this story, who did you have in mind as your target audience? I, I think I know the answer to that, but perhaps it's even more, it's even broader than what I am anticipating. Well, interestingly, it presents itself as a children's story, but I think it has all of the, um, the, the trademarks of a story people of any age could enjoy because there are values being discussed. I see it as a, a very nice story for parents to read to their children, conveys, I think, very uh, sound moral concepts. Uh, there are good lessons to be learned in there about uh, the hurtfulness of, of gossip, um, other parental guidance concepts about how you deal with strangers and being out at night and uh, picking up on false stories and spreading them. So I, I think there are a lot of lessons uh, in the story itself. Your story takes place at the beginning of the traditional Christmas story, or around that time, in the first century, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It, uh, it, it involves the journey of the three kings, so it's uh, just prior to the uh, birth of Christ, and uh, Sarah encounters the three kings, which is where she has an opportunity to uh, display her own virtues of kindness, uh, where she gives the kings her lantern that she was to have used for the Christmas pageant. However, when she arrives at the hall where she's supposed to participate as an angel, Ezekiel denies her entrance because she is late, very much as what had happened in the real-life situation. So as Sarah is meandering her way down the street heading back home, she encounters three strangers whose uh, lanterns had gone out, and they needed light to guide them the rest of their way on their journey to the manger. So uh, Sarah gives him her lantern, and they find their way to the manger, promising to return it uh, on their way back home. In the meantime, earlier in the story, Sarah had lost her lamb, and uh, she and her father had looked diligently for it, and she was quite depressed over having lost the lamb. 
And uh, interestingly, when the three kings return from uh, Bethlehem to return the lantern, following behind the three kings is the little lamb, which when it had disappeared, it had gone to the manger as well and um, awaited the birth of Christ and returned to Sarah uh, following the three kings back. So it sort of went full cycle there. It was kind of a, a nice little story, I believe. And for the listeners, this is a 36-page book, but it's not all, as one might imagine, just large letters and beautiful graphics. It is actually a st- complete story that is included in this, the way you've uh, crafted it. There's plenty of dialogue. Uh, young readers will have a challenge to some degree because uh, there is a complete story there. It will take them a while to get through this book. It's not one of those uh, quick Turn the page type uh, type reads, beautifully done. The illustrations are spectacular in the book. Is there one scene in your story that might really grab the reader and cause them to pause and reflect on your story more than just one time? Well, I think as we get toward the end of the story, uh, where Ezekiel's pride uh, presumes that three kings have come to the village to visit uh, her because she is the most um, well-off individual in the town. Her husband is the wealthiest man. So she steps out into the road uh, expecting them to engage her, but when they ask for the little girl who lives in the house in the corner, being Sarah, uh, Ezekiel is astounded uh, then to find out that the kings really want to see the little girl who showed acts of kindness. And then Ezekiel looks within herself and uh, realizes that it was her impatience, her intolerance that uh, really needed to be reconciled. And so she goes through a transformation herself at that point, and although she had denied Sarah access to the um, being an angel carrying the, her lantern, uh, what she did do at that point is she gave Sarah her own prominent role to lead the whole procession the following day and took on a more humble role herself. So she went through a a bit of an epiphany herself. In reflecting on the story, because this is based on a true life event, what would you advise the reader as individuals in life? What do they need to be aware of? in their surroundings, because you have taken an incident that could have been very sad and and, uh, disappointing for a young child and turned it into a wonderful story. What is your advice to to the reader? Well, I think the lessons that are in the story itself uh, are pretty apparent, and there's elements of demonstrating patience, caring, understanding, uh, lessons of hope, uh, the effects of gossip and teasing. One important thing, I think, with Sarah is the fact that um, she has some human flaws. She's forgetful and she's distracted. But that does not diminish her as um, a virtuous human being because she has the other qualities of charity and kindness. So I suppose one of the best lessons is not to uh, diminish ourselves or diminish others because we have human flaws, all of us do, but we can still rise above them and demonstrate issues which uh, give our life uh, greater meaning. Albert, beautifully done. Were there some specific challenges in getting this to print? 
Well, getting anything to print is always a challenge. <laughs> uh, you know, finding uh, publishers and uh, getting it properly edited. Um, the interesting thing was that when I had written this story, I wrote it in one night uh, because I was thinking of the incident with this little girl. And I happened to send the story just by email to uh, a friend, of, a lady friend of mine who I did not even know was an editor. And she asked me, she said, did you just write that in one night? I said, yeah, well, I just had this, uh, this sense for this story. She said, this, this has to be published. Mm. She said, I'll edit it for you, and I will help you along the way to get this published. So it was sort of serendipitous that it ended up being a published book. I had <laughs> just written it for fun. Well, it's a phenomenal book and well-written. The story is uh, certainly broader than just an initial uh, observation might uh, deceptively tell you. The story, again, is titled Sarah and the Red Scarf. Our author, Albert Rapisi. Sir, where do we get copies of your book? Well, you can get them through Exlibris. Uh, you can find Exlibris online and uh, just type in the name of the book and my name or you can get them through Amazon as well. And Rapisi is spelled R-E-P-I-C-C-I. Albert, are you planning to do a follow-up book, perhaps? Well, interestingly, I have a play running presently off-Broadway called Honor Bound, and uh, that was my latest writing endeavor. It's been running since April, and... um, now I've just been asked to uh, co-author uh, another play, so uh, I'm busy. Congratulations on your extended career. I, I have enjoyed the visit, and I advise and suggest to my listeners that they get a copy of this for the season that's coming up. Sarah and the Red Scarf, A Christmas Story. Albert Rapisi has been my guest. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you, Jay, for having me on. Take for care. Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book is titled Creative Living Series. Is your husband not married? A question mark behind that. And then the subtitle, one that I need to read in depth What Every Man Should Know About Women. 
Our guest joining me from Queens, New York, is Dr. Catherine D. Weathers, author. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Pleasure to visit with you. This is a complicated subject, complicated material, and yet you've, uh, you've, you've jumped right in the middle of it. What was the inspiration for doing this book and for writing it? Well, the inspiration behind writing the book is I've been married three times. And having been married three times and having three divorces, to me, as a minister, is serious business. Uh, When women get married, they want to be married for life. Right. And in today's society, we're finding that men and women, the divorce rate is between 50 and 80 percent, even in the church. Amazing. So that's it's horrifying. So you wanted to share your personal story then in this book, and also the pitfalls, I guess, of uh, of marriage. the The title has got me a little confused. Not confused, but challenged. Is your husband not married? What does that mean, and how did you come up with that concept? Well, um, the in- okay. I wrote the book, and in writing the book, I wrote the book first, and I did not have a title. And I was praying about a title for the book, and I went to a restaurant. And while I was in the restaurant, a man came up to me and said, Is your husband not married? And I said, Great title. Great title. (laughs) (laughs) What what did he mean by that, or what do you think he meant by that? Looking at me, and he felt that I was a beautiful woman. And he was trying to actually drum up a conversation with me. Uh-huh. Interesting okay. approach. I, I don't think I would use that personally. I would end up probably in the hospital if my wife found out. But uh, that is unique. Yes, yes. So that's where the title of the book came. Who did you uh, hope to reach with your book and with the uh, contents? Well, I really wanted to reach the men. Um, because I believe a lot of men need help with women. They feel women are kind of complicated. Or you can get an amen from this corner, that's for sure. Yeah, women are um, complicated. Yes. (laughs) But basically, we think we're simple. We think the men are complicated. Mm Mm-hmm. You know? And it's it's really, if you... I found if a man really just takes it and try to find out who his woman is and appreciate her for who she is, they would have less problems with women. You start Chapter 1 by uh, mentioning this, which is a common misconception. Most women want to get married as little girls because they dream of how the wedding will be, white dresses, all the trimmings, and they think really that they are going to be a princess carried about on a pillow, I think. Is that also part of the misconception? Yes, the Cinderella complex. Mm -hmm. We are going to, you know, live in this beautiful palace with the man of our dreams. He's going to sweep us off our feet. We're going to be hypnotized by the romance. You've been courageous in sharing your personal journey. You, in Chapter 2, talk about God's choice is not divorce, and for someone who has had some challenges in that area, 
how was it to 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 share that information? What did you decide in in that chapter was appropriate uh, conversation? Well, in that chapter, I wanted both men and women to understand that we're going to have pitfalls in relationships. Sometimes they're going to be worse than others. And if we communicate between the two, we have to first keep God first. It has to be a constant communication, like a three-strand cord. You know, husbands are always in charge. And if the wife could understand that, if she, let, if she gives her husband the power to be in charge and he's praying to God and she's praying to God, then she can trust that her man is going to come up with the right answer. Do you believe that husbands and wives should have a, an equal approach in their relationship? Yes, I truly believe it has to be mutual submission. And how do you achieve that? I, I have a wife who uh, I think is uh, probably, I call her the, the uh, chairman of the board and I'm a vice president. How do you address and, things like that? Well, again, you, we have to also remember that women from little girls learn how to be in charge. Mm-hmm. And the basic thing, the charge is to take care of this family that whether they have children or not, they're in preparation to have this children, these children and to have this romantic affair with this man who's going to provide her with her children and they're going to live in this marital bliss. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going to be in love with everybody. They're going to love their children, and in loving their children... They're going to love the neighbors around them. But that doesn't happen in the real world. Right. You know, in the real world, we have to deal with um, adversity. We have to deal with uh, the husband working. And today, now, both husband and wives have to work in order to make ends meet. Lack of preparation. Because of education. Right. That still doesn't stop them from making a marriage work. Love does not have to die. It just takes work. Takes a little extra work. There is a, I would call it, a misconception about what men are expecting or want from women. I don't know. There may be some that are totally focused on the physical attraction I don't personally believe that. What is it that a man should want if he's uh, focused in that direction? What is the right balance that a husband should want from his wife? I believe he wants an open communication with her, that she can be truthful with him and he could be truthful with her, and then they could work through anything. But many, for many men, they want to be God. Mm-hmm. And when you, for many men, I'm not saying every man, when a man wants to be God, he wants to put the people down around him instead of work together with them. Husband and wives need to understand that marriage is two people, men and women, coming together, working together in unity. And without unity, 
the fabric of humanity has been falling apart. And they should be focused on helping each other and building each other up. Yes. How would you introduce your book in a couple of paragraphs to someone? If you meet someone on the street that doesn't know of your background, doesn't know that you are now an author and have written a book about marriage, how would you introduce this to them? Um, I would say to them, you know, I, I would ask them how do they feel about um, men and women relationships, are they in a relationship? And we would have a discussion, you know, about their relationship. I would want to know if it, it depends if it's two people, a man and a woman, or a woman or a man, what would you consider a good relationship? I would start off letting them tell me what they feel a good relationship is. And then I guess I would then throw in, you know, how does God come into play in your relationship? Yes. I've learned without God in a relationship, we find many of the relationships falling apart. Do you think the style of your writing uh, makes it appropriate, possibly, as a study book or study guide in a, uh, in a marriage counseling situation? Yes, I believe it could be. You know, it, 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 either way, I think um, two people who are working on a relationship can use this um, book as a study guide to build on their relationship, or you could take it into a group, and the group can benefit from it. You have uh, described the male role in uh, five different ways. You call the, the beginning role as malehood, then boyhood, manhood, husbandhood, and fatherhood. Describe husbandhood for me. Husbandhood is once a man has built his, I want to say, empire. Now, his empire doesn't have to mean he's a millionaire. It means that he's stable enough. He has a place to live, some place to bring a wife to. And once he's established, he's got a job, he has an apartment. You know, for some men, they need a car, you know. And he has a woman in his life that he feels, you know, this is it. This is the one for me. And he decides to get married. They get married, and he's now a husband who's prepared to share his life with her and share everything with her. You describe marriage in a, uh, I think, a very succinct and uh, distinctive manner. Marriage is for the mature, and also the purpose of marriage is teamwork. Those are key elements, and you also talk about priorities in marriage and your expectations. Some individuals enter into marriage with uh, expectations that are not realistic, and you've addressed those in your book. Were there some challenges in getting this completed, Doctor? Oh, really? I, I think my experience um, in three bad marriages, you know, and although I'm saying they were bad marriages, they really weren't bad. They were a challenge, and that's pretty much a lot of it is what the book is based on, because as I look back, I saw that the marriage could have worked. 
Mm. You know, so in looking back and, and reviewing each chapter of my life, I realized if we had some of those elements in the relationship, the marriage would have worked. And I think back to my great-grandmother and my grandmother, who had worse challenges than we have today. You know, um, they didn't have the financial means that we have today. And yet and still, they stayed with their spouses until the spouse died. Incredible. There's a lot we can learn from previous generations, isn't there? Yes. And it's important that we, as mature adults, learn from our ancestors, learn from the patriarchs and the matriarchs, and staying together is one of them. You have to make yourself happy before you can make somebody else happy. That's true. That's true. And I think the underscored message there also would be if you have some history that may not be looked upon as positive, you should still build on what you've done as a mistake, if there is a mistake there, and uh, grow to a better future. Yes. This book is titled Creative Living Series, Is Your Husband Not Married? What Every Man Should Know About Women. Boy, I need that part. Our author, Dr. Catherine D. Weathers. Dr. Weathers, where do we get copies of your book? You can go online and get a copy of the book at barnesandnoble.com, exlibra.com, and amazon.com. You've mentioned that this is part of the Creative Living series. Are you planning to write or have you written other books that uh, fall in line with with this uh, approach? Yes, I've written three other books um, on in this series. Uh, I wrote a children's book. Um, that was the last, and that really ended the series. It, it, it is so funny because the children's book is I Love My Parents and My Parents Love Me. Oh, great. Great. Listeners, you can do a search under Dr. Catherine D. Weathers and find out about the other books she has penned. Thank you, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome 
back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ex Libris Radio today. You won't believe the story we're going to have today. It's a true story of a country bumpkin who was raised in rural Jamaica but found himself fighting in a war of liberation in Angola, distinguished himself as a brave soldier, returned to Jamaica, and became a successful businessman, husband, and father to 12 children, 10 of them with other women while he was Mary. The name of the book is Bad Boy from Jamaica, the Garnet Myrie story, and the author of that book joins us on the Ex Libris line tonight, uh, today, Dr. Basil Wayne Cog. Doctor, thanks for being with us today. And hello to you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Garnet Myrie, this is a true story. This is a biography of Mr. Myrie's story. That's right. So you were telling me earlier before we actually started that Mr. Myrie was actually your neighbor while you lived and were raised in Jamaica. Yes, we grew up in the same community and fell under the same influences. Um, But as an introduction, can I just um, say that um, anyone who loves uh, Mark Twain should enjoy this book immensely. I have read all of uh, 100,000 pages of Mark Twain's writings, and I just love his style and his humor and his uh, depictions of life in the South. And I wanted to approach Jamaican culture that same way. Mr. Myrie's story is really just a, a vehicle to describe Jamaican culture and, and, and beliefs um, from birth and through death. Um, but uh, there was sufficient um, intrigue here about how Myrie actually ended up fighting in the War of Liberation in Angola, and um, it, it is a it, it's a pretty amazing tale. As you were telling me earlier, Doctor, there's really kind of two very distinct uh, parts of Jamaica. Absolutely, um, it, it's actually. divided up in several segments, but um, on the most part, half the population believes that the the motherland is England. This is where our laws, we drive on the left, our dress, our... In in fact, I'll just say that many ladies in Jamaica will put on seven layers of clothing to be a well-dressed lady, so even while the temperature is 100 degrees in a tropical climate, they believe they're well-dressed because that's how Queen Victoria dressed. Um, so there is that they have uh, a picture of the queen on their walls. So contradict that with people who believe their roots are in Africa. And so you set up a, a, an interesting um, uh, dichotomy. Um, so, uh, interestingly, the British did such a good job of brainwashing everybody to believe that um, their life, you know, would be best served by adopting English um, English practices. Um, but Myrie went against that grain and. And as a result, he was beaten and brutalized a lot. 
but he was like a cork. Every time you push him underneath the water and try to sub, uh, subdue him, he would pop back up. And he was a pretty precocious um, child that wasn't afraid of uh, of anyone. And he could handle himself, you know, quite well verbally and physically. Now, you are the author of two other books. Uh, those, as mm-hmm. you were telling me earlier, are more technical in nature. Tell us a, just a tad bit of that and why you decided to go with a, a, a completely different kind of genre for uh, Bad Boy from Jamaica. My my first book was about African heart, um, the lost soul of Africa, and uh, it, looking at how um, Africa's soul was stolen when the Europeans stole all the art out of Africa and are they're being displayed in museums all over Europe. And so I was looking at, you know, what people become when they they don't have their art. Um, the art is really their soul. So I, I wrote a book to talk about the lost art, lost soul of Africa. Uh, the second book I wrote had to do with uh, why children should know their grandparents. And the intent of it was to motivate um, people to take care of themselves, prevent heart disease, so that they wouldn't um, um, have heart disease too early in their lives and stay around to uh, help nurture their grandchildren. Um, I think that's a very big motivation for grandparents uh, to take care of their grandchildren. So that led you into the bad boy from Jamaica, which... Well, when I retired, I decided, you know, the, you know, I was, you know, so impressed with the Mark Twain Mm -hmm. um, stories that I decided to write a story about Jamaican life. And Myrie was the perfect subject for that. Um, He, we we were able to use his life in a very very dramatic way uh to show the the dichotomy in within the society but it's it's rather unique um in terms of the way christmas is celebrated or sunday afternoons are celebrated it's a, it's a very happy book and perhaps the reason that uh, mary became such a bad boy that um, his uncle had gone to the United States on a farm work um, visa and brought back some black liberation literature, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and so on. And so he was able to stand up and say, I'm black and I'm proud. But that didn't sit well with the people who celebrated the Queen. And so he he lamented, you know, why is it that, you know, people hate me for loving myself? Um, so that's one of the, you know, characteristics that I'm, I'm trying to draw out in the story. But he ended up uh, under the influence of um, uh, some uh, African-oriented um, radical thinkers in Kingston, and as a result, there was a lot of um, rioting and fighting, and he ended up uh, going to Cuba uh, and joined the Cuban army and 
through that experience, uh, Castro sent him to fight in the War of Liberation um, in Angola. And it was a successful war. He survived. He came through the fire, came back to Jamaica, became a very successful businessman, and uh, married his childhood sweetheart. Um, but even though he was married, he fathered, you know, 10 children with other women. And uh, Mrs. Mary accepted that. Um, and I need to point out that many men in Jamaica have multiple families and known to each other. So that's a pretty dramatic um, difference in our cultures. Is that part of your hope with the book, Doctor? I mean, I know, speaking specifically for Americans who know probably a little bit about Jamaica, since it, its proximity is so close um, to to America, that they some of the customs, just like the one you mentioned, may be a little difficult for people outside of Jamaica to understand. It is difficult, and... Um it, it is not difficult for third world people, on the other hand, because even Che Guevara had several families, and uh, in Africa, a man can have four wives, and so it, it is difficult in terms of American values. It just wouldn't fly here. Um, but in Jamaica, you know, there are different levels of expectation. There, there's more of a belief that men can't be. Um, men can't be controlled, so let dogs delight to bark and bite. Mm. Um, so it's just something that women decide they just have to live with. So Jamaica, obviously a small place compared to other countries in the world, but you've mm-hmm. managed to produce the world's fastest man, the world's fastest woman. Well, and, isn't that and, amazing? Yeah, that, yeah. Um, they, there are so many amazing things about this very small country with a population of less than 3 million people Um, who would have thought that we could produce the fastest man and the fastest woman, the greatest musician of all times um, worldwide in it it is just a a country that does amazing things and uh, it it really is a puzzle as to why we're able to be so well-known being such a small country. When you sat down, when you sat down to write uh, The Bad Boy from Jamaica, did you have a, a specific target audience or someone specifically that you were writing to or writing for or hoping they would get something from this book? The primary audience, I think, is the diaspora. Jamaica has changed quite a bit, and the uh, one of the things I hoped to accomplish was to remind um, Jamaicans who are no longer living in Jamaica of what life used to be. You know, uh, the 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 activities of the past, um, how things were celebrated, and how we um, approach various problems. Um, it, it is uh, quite fascinating. Um, it, it is, you know, it, it's even how we treat death. Um, that uh, 
when someone is sick, there's never a shortage of people willing to help because they believe that when people die and go to heaven, they get to sit down with God, and if they give a good report about those left behind, they will get a special blessing. <laughs> so, you know, people will flock to the homes of people who are dying and help take care of them in the hopes that they'll say something <laughs> wow. nice about them to God. Hmm. Um, isn't that unique? Yeah. But uh, it's it, it, the primary audience I think I'm writing for is the Jamaican diaspora because Jamaica, there are more Jamaicans living outside of Jamaica than there are living in Jamaica. Yeah. And they're scattered throughout the four pillars of the world. I also found something interesting that you, you talked about uh, at least, I, I don't know if it's specifically in the book, but the way that Jamaicans treat families versus strangers. Uh, is that is that another one yes, of the traditions? That's another, yes, that's another puzzle that um, um, Jamaicans are more, are very gracious to strangers and far more gracious to strangers than to their own family and friends. They will, for instance, set aside um, a living room that are only for guests or when there are you're making cookies and some of the cookies get broken who do you feed the, the broken cookies to in Jamaica you know it there's not even a question you would feed that to family and friends um, they will understand or and they're more oriented toward teasing um, strangers um, or even people in power and people with authority than they would be to their own family and friends. Uh, it, it's a it's an odd approach to life, where you know in in the United States I think we're more oriented towards treating family and friends first and not necessarily looking out so much for strangers. Again, the name of the book is Bad Boy from Jamaica, the Garnet Myrie story. The author is Dr. Basil Wayne Kong. He's on the Ex Libris line with us today. Dr. Kong, where, your book's been out for a little over a month now. Where, where can folks go to find more about the book or about, about yourself? Well, obviously it's available on Amazon.com. And uh, it's less than $4 for people with Kindle and other electronic devices. It's $15 for paperback and $25 for hardback. And um, it's about 200 pages. It's, it's an easy read, um, but uh, we'll obviously challenge your the reader's beliefs about what they would expect life to be in Jamaica. And um, I think it will add significantly to our understanding of life in Jamaica. Much like... Uh Mark Twain did for the South. Absolutely. That's my goal. <laughs> and hopefully it, it'll be a start in that direction. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Dr. Basil Wayne Kong, the author of Bad Boy from Jamaica, The Garnet Myrie Story. Thank you so much for being with us today on Ex Libris Radio. Thank you. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here 
on Ex Libris On Air.